0: Many years ago when Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul was first introduced to the biblical doctrine of predestination. This was while he was in college. He says he struggled with, and in fact he said, I fought against it tooth and nail all the way through college. But eventually R.C. Sproul became convinced primarily by his study of Paul's letter to the Romans, that the doctrine of predestination was a biblical truth and a precious truth. In his own words, Dr. Sproul explains where his struggle with predestination took him as he learned the truth about it. He writes, the ninth chapter of Romans was the clincher. I simply could find no way to avoid the apostles' teaching in that chapter. Reluctantly, I sighed and surrendered, but with my head, not my heart, Okay, I believe this stuff, but I don't have to like it. I soon discovered that God has created us so that the heart is supposed to follow the head. I could not, with impunity, love something with my head that I hated with my heart. Once I began to see the rationality of the doctrine and its broader implications, my eyes were opened to the graciousness of grace and to the grand comfort of God's sovereignty." I began to like the doctrine little by little until it burst upon my soul that the doctrine revealed the depth and the riches of the mercy of God. Listen, R.C. Sproul was absolutely right. The doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty does reveal the depth and the riches of the mercy and grace of God like really no other doctrine in Scripture, And that's why this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper, it's going to be the focus of our study because the Lord's Supper, as you know, it's a time that we set aside to remember Christ's death for us on the cross, the place where God supremely demonstrated the depth and riches of his mercy. And nothing helps us to appreciate this more than an understanding of his sovereignty in predestining us unto salvation. Now, as I told you a few weeks ago, for the next few months, whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, we're going to be looking at a set of biblical truths known as the doctrines of grace because they emphasize God's grace and mercy in saving us. Others prefer to call them Reformation truths because these truths were at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Still others have labeled these doctrines Calvinism because it was the French reformer John Calvin who although not the first to see these truths about God's sovereignty in Scripture, he certainly emphasized them in his teachings, his sermons, his writings like no one else of his generation. Now I realize that sometimes the term, the very word Calvinism troubles people because they're uncomfortable with a theological system being named after a man. concern that if a system of theology is named after a man, then it might be a man-made system of theology rather than a biblical system of theology. But don't let that trouble you, because as I mentioned just a moment ago, John Calvin did not invent these doctrines, nor did he name them after himself. Long before Calvin ever taught or wrote about these doctrines, a church father from the fourth century by the name of Augustine, sometimes pronounced Augustine, but probably more correctly Augustine, championed many of the doctrines that have come to be known as Calvinism. In fact, John Calvin lived, folks, about a thousand years after Augustine but like Augustine he rediscovered these truths that were explicitly taught in scripture and he emphasized them more than anyone else so that in time in time they came to bear his name but listen to these helpful words by none other than Charles Spurgeon about the word Calvinism Spurgeon said we only use the term Calvinism for shortness that doctrine, which is called Calvinism, did not spring from Calvin. We believe that it sprang from the great founder of all truth, Perhaps Calvin himself derived it mainly from the writings of Augustine. Augustine obtained his views without doubt through the Spirit of God from the diligent study of the writings of Paul, and Paul received them of the Holy Ghost, from Jesus Christ, the great founder of the Christian dispensation. We use the term then not because we impute any extraordinary importance to Calvin, having taught these doctrines. We would be just as willing to call them by any other name if we could find one which would be better understood and which on the whole would be as consistent with fact. Now, the reason it is so helpful in studying the doctrines of grace in the format or the form of Calvinism is because Calvinism has organized these doctrines into five very specific tenets commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. And they're laid out in a popular acronym known as TULIP, which stands for the following doctrines. T stands for total depravity. U stands for unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. I stands for irresistible grace. And P stands for the perseverance of the saints. In other words, eternal security, that the saints do persevere. Now, as I said a few minutes ago, Whenever we observe the Lord's Supper over the next few months, I want us to look at each of these five doctrines or tenets of Calvinism because when properly understood, and that's the key, when properly understood, they reveal to us how great our God is and how gracious he has been to us in granting us salvation. And as a result, understanding these biblical truths of Calvinism will help us in our observance of the Lord's Supper in the sense that it will make it that much more meaningful. And so having looked at the doctrine of total depravity last month, and if you were not here, it was on a Sunday night, I would encourage you to listen to that message. This morning, then, we turn our attention to the next point in this theological system, and it's one that many people, like R.C. Sproul, initially struggle with. In fact, this is one of the most controversial subjects in all of theology. Loved by some, hated by others. Doctrine I'm referring to is the second of the five points of Calvinism, the U in the acrostic TULIP, which stands for unconditional election. Now, there's no question that the subject of election can set off all kinds of negative reactions in the minds of some Christians, but for different reasons. Some react negatively to it simply because they just don't understand what unconditional election means. Nobody has ever really explained it to them. They know something here and something there they've heard, but nobody's connected the dots and put it together and explained it in a cohesive manner. Others, they know what it means, they just don't like it. And that's why they react so negatively to it. So in light of this being a rather controversial subject, I want to make sure that you, as the flock at Lakeside, understand it. Therefore, I'm going to take not just one week, but two weeks, this week and next week, to cover this doctrine. Now, because unconditional election is such a debated issue, it would be wise of us if we kept certain things in mind that I think will help to minimize potential problems that might arise as we go through this and study this important teaching. First of all, we need to make sure that as we explore this profound subject of divine election, we need to keep in mind a great truth found in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, which says, "...the secret things..." belong to the Lord, and the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. You see, election comes under this category of the secret things of the Lord, because while God has revealed certainly a great deal to us in his word about election, there are certain aspects of this doctrine, certain truths about election, known only to him and not to us, such as why he's chosen only some people to salvation and not everyone, Or why he decided to elect this individual and not that individual. Or how he can say that he loves all people and yet not choose to elect and save all people. You see, Deuteronomy 29.29 is a great verse for us to keep in mind since it reminds us that there are going to be certain aspects, features about divine election that are just beyond our comprehension. Because God hasn't revealed them to us and he says that. And therefore, they'll have to remain a mystery to us. And you know what? That's all right. It should be all right with you that some things are mysteries. We don't have to know, we don't have to understand all aspects of election to believe it. We should be able to be comfortable with the fact that the Bible teaches divine election and at the same time it presents it as a divine mystery. I love the way one Bible teacher put it when he said, I believe that Christian maturity includes an increasing comfort with divine mystery and a growing trust in God so that we can say with David, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. So, we really need to approach this doctrine has a divine mystery and we need to rest in the fact that though we don't understand certain aspects about this teaching, we can certainly trust that God is good, God is wise, and whatever he does is right and it's just. Now, The second thing we need to keep in mind as we approach this mystery is that the truth of divine election, understand this, it is not the same as the gospel message. It is not the gospel. The doctrine of election tells us why we have come to believe in Christ, but it is not the message of salvation. You see, no one is saved by believing in the doctrine of election, You're saved by trusting in the person and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I have known many over the years, many sincere and godly Christians, some who I consider to be good friends, who don't accept the truth of divine election. Now, I think they're wrong in their understanding, but that doesn't mean they're they're not saved. As one noted Bible teacher so aptly put it, he said... A person does not have to believe in, understand, or agree with the doctrine of election in order to be saved. A saving relationship with God requires repentance from sin and trust in Christ alone, to save by grace alone, through faith alone. While the doctrine of election is an important one, and mistaken beliefs about it can have negative consequences, an embrace of the doctrine of election is clearly not necessary for Salvation. Now the third thing to keep in mind is that our fellowship with other believers in Christ should never be based, never on whether or not we agree on the doctrine of election. And it should never become, folks, a point of contention between believers. It should never separate us. Listen, the basis for our fellowship with others in Christ is our mutual faith in Jesus Christ, not our view of Calvinism, now, I personally feel passionate about the doctrines of Calvinism because I believe with all my heart they 're biblical and especially the truth of election. But I refuse to let this doctrine disrupt my fellowship with those Christians who have another viewpoint, and those of us who are Calvinists ought to be very, very careful to guard our hearts from getting more excited about Calvinism than we do about the gospel message itself. Nothing should excite us more than the truth that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and that he rose again. That is the gospel message as Paul, the apostle Paul, defines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. And he says in those verses, this is the message of first importance. And so by embracing the teaching about election, we must must make sure that we don't become theologically snooty and smug and look down upon others who don't agree with us. So, if we keep these three things in mind, that divine election is a mystery that we just can't fully understand, that it's not the same thing as the gospel, and that it is not the basis for our fellowship with other Christians, we'll be in good shape to minimize potential problems and misunderstandings that can arise from our study of this truth. So, with these preliminaries behind us, we're now ready to jump in and to discover the second point of Calvinism, the U in TULIP, which stands for unconditional election. It is a rather broad subject. Entire books have been written about this, so I'm going to narrow it down to four questions I'm going to ask and then answer. Two questions this week, two questions next week. First question being this, what is the meaning of the term unconditional election? That's where we have to begin. How do we define this? What does it mean? Now, essentially... What Calvinists mean by the term unconditional election is that before the foundation of the world, God chose, based on his own determinative will and nothing else, certain individuals from Adam's fallen race to be the objects of his grace, so that they and they alone would be saved from his eternal wrath. In other words, election declares that out of the mass, the mass of fallen humanity, God determined who would be saved by choosing them to be saved. Now let me explain something that is both extremely important and critical in understanding the concept of unconditional election. I mentioned to you last month that all of the doctrines of Calvinism stem from the truth of total depravity which is the first point in the tulip total depravity is this that all of us have been corrupted by sin in the totality of our being so that we are not morally neutral we're not spiritually sick we're talking about unconverted state but rather we are slaves to sin and spiritually dead Remember what I said last month, before our conversion, we were all like spiritual zombies. Walking, we were the walking dead, dead to God, but very much alive in our sin, very much active in our sin. Now, because all men and women are in this state of total depravity, we have lost both the will and the desire to make any kind of positive response to God, especially a response towards Christ and salvation. Therefore, left to himself, an individual will never, ever choose to obey and submit to God. He'll always choose sin. He'll always choose rebellion. He'll always choose disobedience because that's what his sinful nature desires. And his behavior, his desires are dictated by his sin nature. This is precisely what Paul means when he states in Romans 3, 11, that no man seeks after God. Let that sink in. No man, Paul said, seeks after God. No one desires a relationship with him. No one seeks him out for salvation. No one's interested in coming to know him. Jesus said men love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil and they don't want the light exposing their evil deeds and their evil hearts. And so we all run, we all hide from God just as Adam and Eve did when they sinned. And if it was up to us, we would keep on running and keep on hiding from him until we finally died in our sins and we ended up in hell. And that's the way it is, folks, with all of Adam's descendants because in our totally depraved, spiritually dead and sin-enslaved condition, no one will ever choose on their own to turn away from their sin and to trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. Because we don't have the moral capacity to do that. We don't have the moral desire to do that. That's why we are hopeless unless God does something to remedy the situation. Since man left to himself will not and he cannot choose to be in a right relationship with God by faith in Christ. But God has done something to remedy the situation. Out of his incredible mercy, his amazing grace, he has elected a segment of lost humanity to salvation so that he supernaturally changes their hearts and gives them the faith to believe in Jesus and he saves them for all of eternity. Now what I've just explained to you, that is the heart, that is the soul Of the doctrine of unconditional election. Listen closely to what I'm about to say because what I'm about to say to you is critically, vitally important. If God had not sovereignly elected some to salvation, then no one would ever be saved. Did you hear that? If God had not sovereignly elected some to salvation, then no one would ever be saved. Let me put it this way. If God had not sovereignly elected you to salvation, then you would never be saved because you would never have desired on your own to submit to Christ's authority over you. You just wouldn't. You couldn't. You had a sin nature telling you just the opposite. I'm convinced that many Christians reject the teaching of election simply because they don't understand it. They don't understand it, and they don't understand it because it has never been properly, biblically, rationally, cohesively explained to them. They see election as if it's unfair, as if it's not right of God to elect only certain people but not everyone to salvation, as if it's unjust for God to be selective in the matter of who he chooses to save, because in choosing some, he's condemning others. But anyone who thinks like this just doesn't understand that all people, note this, all people are condemned already. They're condemned because of their sin and not election. They're condemned because of their sin. And that in election, God is only being merciful to some who don't deserve his mercy at all. See, election condemns no one. They're already condemned. Election condemns no one but only demonstrates God's mercy to those he chooses to be merciful to. Here's the way one pastor explained unconditional election to a woman in his church who she objected to it because she thought it was incredibly unfair of God to do this. He writes this. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you or you or you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts making them willing to come. He said election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. So folks if you want justice, don't look for it in the doctrine of election. You won't find it there because all you will find in the doctrine of election is mercy and grace. See, it's important to understand that God is under no obligation to elect and save anyone. If he never elected a single individual to salvation and punished all of us in hell forever, That would be completely just and righteous of him. And it would be perfectly fair of him because eternal punishment is exactly what we all deserve. But instead of punishing the entire human race, God decided to elect some to salvation who would then become his redeemed people. But the question is so often asked, often asked by some, is why? Why? If God was going to elect some, then why didn't he elect everyone? And I have an answer for that. Are you ready? I don't know. That's the answer. And I'll tell you this, nobody else knows. The greatest theologians don't know this. However, a more appropriate question to ask than, why didn't God elect everyone, is this question. Why did God elect anyone? Why did he elect anyone? And the Bible does provide some answers to that question along two lines. First of all, I call your attention to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes this as he opens his letter. Paul a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Now, according to the statement by the apostle Paul, before the ages began, in other words, before time began, meaning somewhere in eternity past, if we could put it that way, God who is incapable of lying, he made a promise to choose or to elect some and to give them eternal life. The question, though, is to whom did God make this promise? This promise that he made, which God cannot lie. He made a promise that he has to keep. Well, he couldn't possibly have made the promise to any human being or even to an angel because he made this promise, Paul says, before time began. And no one existed there then except God himself. Therefore, God must have made this promise to himself. And specifically, it was a promise God the Father made to God the Son, to Christ, in eternity past. At some point in eternity, in the past, the Father made a promise to the Son to give him a group of people chosen from amongst all of lost humanity as a love gift. Here's the way John MacArthur explains this amazing truth. He writes, "...the father determined to give the son a redeemed humanity as a visible expression of his infinite love. In doing so, he selected all those who would make up that redeemed humanity and wrote their names in the book of life before the world began." His gift to the Son is composed of those whose names are in that book, a joyous congregation of undeserving saints who will praise and serve the Son forever. Now folks, this is precisely what Scripture teaches, what Scripture says, that everyone who comes to Christ for salvation comes to Him as a love gift from God The Father, the Father gives the elect to Christ so that we are his love gifts to his son and that's the reason he determined to elect us to salvation. For example, we read in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, notice we're given to Christ, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I'll never ever cast out. Jesus said it is the Father who gives those he's elected to him for salvation. He'll never cast them away. Why? Because they are love gifts from the Father. He's not going to cast away the Father's gifts. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not only does this mean that men don't have the ability to come to Christ on their own so that the Father must draw them, irresistibly draw them to himself, but it also means that it is the Father's good pleasure to draw sinners to Christ so that he might lovingly present them to his Son. So one reason that God has chosen some sinners to be saved is... So that he, God the Father, might give these elect ones to God the Son as an expression of his infinite love for him. That leads us then to a second reason as to why God elects just some to salvation. Now, what I'm about to tell you is incredibly profound and wonderfully precious. It is the treasure. So I want you to listen carefully. The reason... The Father gives the elect to His Son is so that Christ will have some from amongst the mass of fallen humanities, just some who will exalt Him forever. John chapter 17 is known as our Lord's high priestly prayer to the Father on behalf of His disciples who He was about to leave behind as he went to the cross and then ultimately returned to the Father in glory. So it is Christ's high priestly prayer because he is praying for representing his disciples to the Father. Now, he prays for several things in this prayer. He prays for his disciples, for their protection. He prays for their unity. But I want you to notice how he prays for them in verse 24. He said this, he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed that those whom the Father gave him, his divinely chosen Followers would eventually join him in heaven in glory so that they would, note this, so that they would see his brilliant glory and understand how much the Father loves him. In other words, in praying for this, Jesus is explaining why the Father elected some sinners to be his followers. It's so that there would be some, just a remnant, a remnant from amongst Adam's fallen race who would see how magnificent Jesus Christ really is and how loved he is by the Father. And so then they would glorify and adore and worship and honor him forever and ever. The Apostle Paul said essentially the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that, here's the purpose, so that he, that is Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, Paul teaches that those whom God has elected to be saved will ultimately, when they are in heaven, be like Christ in character. That's not now. We are growing progressively to be more and more like Christ, but when we get to heaven, we will be perfectly conformed to his image. We will never be Christ. We are not deity, but in character to some degree, we will be like Christ, conformed to the image of his son. Question is, why? Why would this happen? Paul says, so that, here's the reason, so that he, meaning Jesus, would be the firstborn Among many brethren. In other words, God chose some so that Jesus would be the preeminent one, the prominent one among a host of people who would be like him and would reflect his glory and worship him for all of eternity. This is why God the Father chose some sinners to be saved. It was for them, for us, for those of us who know Christ, to be enthralled, to be absorbed, to be in awe of his Son. See, salvation is not just about making you or me happy and going to heaven when we die. It's far greater than that. It's far deeper than that. The Father chose some to be saved because He loves the Son and wanted a segment of redeemed sinners to recognize how great the Son is so that they would give Him, bring Him all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, all the adoration for all of eternity. So when Calvinists speak of unconditional election, this is what they mean. That in eternity past, God determined, based on his own sovereign will and not on the condition of anyone's character or behavior, to mark out certain individuals to be given to Jesus Christ for salvation as love gifts from the Father so that for all of the ages they would give Christ the praise, adoration, honor that he so rightly deserves. Now, that's the meaning of unconditional election. This is what Calvinism teaches. But what we want to know, what we have to know, is this. Is this taught in the Bible? So that's the next question we want to ask in our study this morning. Does the Bible actually teach unconditional, and that's the key word here, Unconditional election. Does the Bible actually teach it? And the answer is emphatically yes. The Bible is filled with statements that teach the doctrine of unconditional election. In fact, James Montgomery Boy suggests that there are probably, he said, several hundred texts in Scripture that speak of divine election. Here's a sampling of them. I'm just going to read them. I don't even have to comment on them. They're kind of self-explanatory. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. John chapter 15 verses 16 and 19. Jesus said you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit remain verse 19 If you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you Acts 13 verse 48 When the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, based on these texts, and there are many, many, many others just like them, it's hard, in fact, it's impossible to deny that the Bible teaches some kind of election unto salvation. The question is, what kind of election? That's the real issue. What kind of election? Is it unconditional election, as Calvinists say it is, meaning what? Meaning that election is based solely on God's sovereign decision to bestow his grace upon some? Or is election conditioned upon something other than God's sovereign will? Well, those who reject the doctrine of unconditional election, they say that God chose some on the basis that he knew they would choose him. They don't deny election, they just have a different view of it on the basis that he knew they would choose him. And they point to two specific verses, one in First Peter and one in Romans 8 to support their view. Actually, First Peter is two verses. First Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, here's an interesting statement by Peter as he opens his first letter. And he states that some are chosen. But he says they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, which opponents of Calvinism then interpret as meaning that God based his decision to elect certain individuals to salvation on the fact that he knew ahead of time which individuals would choose to believe in Christ. Likewise, opponents of Calvinism point to Romans chapter 8, Verse 29 and they interpret the statement those he foreknew he predestined to mean this that God looked down the corridors of time and saw those individuals who would accept Christ and on the basis of that foreknowledge he predestined them. So... How do Calvinists answer this objection to unconditional election? Well, I'll tell you how this Calvinist, me, how I answer it. Not only is it the wrong interpretation of the biblical concept of God's foreknowledge, but it absolutely makes no sense logically. You see, it makes no sense logically that the basis for God's election is that he knew ahead of time those who would believe in him. And so based on this knowledge that they chose him, he then chose them. Folks, that doesn't make any sense. It defies logic because it violates the very meaning of the word elect. You cannot take a word and distort it and say this is what it means when that's not what it means. Language means something. Words mean something. To elect something means to choose something because that's what you want. That's why you selected it or that's why you elected it. But to say that God chose to elect those individuals who he knew would choose him, that's no election at all. Listen, if that was the case, that divine election was based on man first choosing God, then there is no such thing as divine election. Because in reality, people would really be electing themselves and God would simply be a bystander responding to man's free will. In other words, it would be silly, absolutely silly for God to tell us that he chooses someone to salvation if in reality that individual chose him. If that was the case, then he wouldn't have to choose anyone. So why tell us so often in the Bible that he has chosen us to salvation if he hasn't chosen us but merely rubber-stamped our choice of him? So this view of God basing his election on knowing ahead of time who's going to trust him for salvation. It's just wrong logically. It's not rational. It just doesn't make any sense. But also, it's wrong biblically because it is a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the meaning of the word foreknowledge as used in the Bible. Now, before we look at the meaning of the word foreknowledge, we need to acknowledge... The fact that God certainly foresees everything and therefore he knows everything that's going to happen before it even happens. That's why we say that God is omniscient. It means that he's all-knowing. So for example, we read in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8, the scripture foreseeing, note that word, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel before him to Abraham, saying in all the nations will be blessed in you. In other words, God, foreseeing that the Gentiles would be saved, because he determined to save them, proclaimed the gospel message to Abraham that the Gentiles would be blessed in him, meaning his seed, his seed being Jesus Christ. So, we know that God sees all things and he knows what's going to happen before it happens because he sovereignly determines he has sovereignly determined what will happen in the future. However, the word for new or for know is used in scripture not to mean that God simply knows ahead of time what's going to happen. It is used to speak of God, note this, for ordaining what is going to happen. That's the meaning of the word. See, the Greek word the Greek word for know means to choose to love. It means to set one's affection upon someone. It's a word that speaks of personal, intimate relationship. So when we read, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, that Joseph did not know Mary until she gave birth to Jesus, it means that he wasn't physically intimate with her until the birth of Jesus. He certainly knew her before, but he had not had physical relations with her There was no physical intimacy until after Jesus was born. And when in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. He means he didn't have a personal relationship with these people. They were unbelievers. He certainly knew all about them, but he didn't know them in a relationship. Now, if the word know, as used in Scripture, means to set one's affections on someone in a personal relationship, then to put the prefix for ahead of the word means to set one's affections on someone beforehand, and not merely to just know information about them beforehand, it's to set one's affections. Notice what we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, concerning Jesus. For he, meaning Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, Peter can't possibly be saying that God just knew about Christ and he knew what would happen to him ahead of time. There's no point in saying that. That's rather obvious. No, what Peter means here is not only did the Father set his affection upon Christ, but from the foundation of the world, he determined That Christ would appear in time and in history and would be crucified for sinners like us. That's exactly what Peter said publicly in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. He said this along with the other apostles. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, now they're praying this, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God not only saw ahead of time what evil men would do to Christ, but his crucifixion was foreordained and it was predestined by God himself the same thing holds true for Romans chapter 8 verses 28 and 29 where we read those he foreknew he predestined. Now notice in this sentence that Paul doesn't say that God knew ahead of time that certain individuals what they would do with Christ. In fact he doesn't say that God knew anything about these individuals although in reality he knew everything about them. He simply says that he foreknew them. He foreknew them. What does that mean? It means that before him, before the foundation of the world, God chose to set his affection upon them and have a personal relationship with them. And so he predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, they'll be in heaven with the son. Now folks, today we have been mining some of the deepest and most precious treasures Of God's Word. This is deep theology. While you and I may not be able, and we can't grasp all these truths about unconditional election, what we can and what we should grasp is that election reveals how merciful God has been to us. And therefore, it ought to lead us to worship Him, to adore Him for being so kind to hopeless, zombie-like dead sinners like us. Now if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, be careful that you don't hide behind election as an excuse for your unbelief. Election isn't the reason that you're not a believer. Your sin, your sin is what's keeping you from Christ. Your stubborn, stiff-necked approach whereby you determine you're gonna live your life the way you wanna live it, that's what's keeping you from coming to Christ. So come to him. I invite you come to Him today. Be set free from the bondage of sin. You may think you're free, doing what you want to do, but you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. So don't hide behind election. Oh, oh, some are elect. I must not be elect, so I'm not going to come. That's not the reason. It's your sin that's holding you back. Now, how do you know if you're one of the elect? It's very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to faith. Come to him for salvation. Those who believe on him are the elect. And their believing in him leads them to worship him and adore him for their salvation, especially when they understand how merciful and kind and gracious he's been to choose them. And so, as we observe the Lord's Supper, I want you to just, I plead with you, to. Give the Lord thanks. Praise Him. Adore Him right now for choosing you. Because salvation from beginning to end is all of God. The only reason we even responded is because He changed our hearts. He regenerated us. He drew us to Himself. It's all of His grace. And that's what we'll be doing for all of eternity is praising Him. That will be our song forever. Praising Him because we'll understand So much more when we get to glory. But for right now, praise and adore him for setting his saving affection upon you when you didn't deserve it. And just dismiss from your thinking forever that his choice of you had anything to do with you choosing him. He chose you because out of his mercy and grace, he determined to save you for all of eternity. You didn't choose him. You would never choose him on your own. He chose you. Let's stand for closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you for allowing us as a congregation to mine these deep truths of your word. Lord, this is profound theology. These are mysteries that we don't understand completely. But what we do understand leads us to adore you, leads us to be so grateful for all that you've done for us. For if you hadn't done this, we would end up in hell forever, hopeless, Lord, I do pray that if there are some here or some watching, some listening, who have never repented of their sins and turned to Christ, trusting him for their salvation, I pray that this would be the day of their salvation, that you would draw them to yourself. May no one hide behind election as an excuse for not coming to faith in you. May you convict them of their sin, of their need for Christ, of their desperate need for you. And without hesitation, may they come, Lord, as you draw them. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.